0: Welcome to RPN, the podcast that explores the world of private markets. I'm your host, Graciela Castillo, and today I'm happy to introduce the third episode of our special on climate change. This time, Suzanne Tavel is joined by Jean-Marc Champagne, Head of Environmental Finance for Asia-Pacific Area and Bankable Nature Solutions at WWF. They're here to discuss new ways of bringing private capital into the natural capital sector, as well as the plethora of opportunities in the fast-growing market for nature-based solutions. It's a very interesting topic. So with that, I'd like to welcome Suzanne.
1: Welcome to all our listeners. And it's a pleasure today to be joined by Jean-Marc, who is something of a rarity, having worked at the Center of Finance and Investment Banking. And now having shifted his attention and being on the front line in investing around nature, we're going to really benefit from his perspectives. And it is really my pleasure to welcome him and thank him in advance for his time.
2: Thank you, Suzanne. It's a a pleasure to be here. And I'm I'm very happy to join the podcast. And uh, thank you for uh, the invitation.
1: So to get us started, let's ease our way in and first start by addressing the topic of biodiversity. Now, as our listeners will appreciate, biodiversity really talks to the plethora of species that inhabits the planet, be they human, plant, animal or bacteria. But we see this topic emerging more and more in mainstream media, as well as in mainstream finance discussions. Now, that's my perspective on it. But would you agree with that view that it's shifting to mainstream? And also, if you could highlight some efforts or initiatives that you see happening that potentially could be even more catalytic around this topic?
2: Yeah, Suzanne. I think you know it's interesting because when I first started in this, as you mentioned in my in, in the introduction, I um, moved from finance into the world of development or sustainable finance. Um, and you know, when I first came over, the the big area of concentration seemed to be on on climate change only, um, and some other areas are involving around carbon, but. Recently, and, and for very good reasons, uh, I think the, 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 the conversation has changed. It's become focused more or started to take account of biodiversity. Um, and that's, that's very good because what has happened, I think we saw, um, you know, while it was focused on climate change, and that's a very big issue, um, there was a lot of areas that were lacking in terms of actual nature for, you know, finance considering nature. So this has been, I think, you know, in the last year or so, a pretty big development and I think it's it's very good for um, for for nature and for trad- more traditional conservation um, to get the financial industry and investments focused in this area. But I would say this: it's also a potential risk um, because it's a potential risk in how it's done. I should say um, biodiversity. You know, it, while it's really important, it's it's also important that we don't fall into an area that you know something that is a buzzword that's just being thrown around to look like. You know, for the financial industry, for example, to look like they're actually doing something um, that is good. With that said, um, getting this on the agenda in the first place is a very big step. And some of the initiatives um, that I think are going for—I mean, the one, i mean, you have the traditional ones like the CBD. And COP 15, but I think the one that is really actually going to, you know, it's still in its early days, but the one that's going to make a difference um, in the future will be the TNFD. So that's the Task Force for Nature um, Financial Related Disclosure, and that, to me, that is a that can potentially be a big game changer. Now, similar to the TCFD, which is the Task Force for Climate Related Disclosures, the climate related financial disclosures. Um, it will have a similar framework or a similar um, uh, methodology to trying to disclose um, more risks uh, related to nature like the Climate uh, Initiative does. The issue, though, is why it's still early days, and I think there's a long way to go, is that the uh, TNFD, in, in, you know, in trying to find nature-related uh, financial issues or risks, it's very difficult to quantify that. I mean, if you're at a financial, you know, if you're, if you're, you know, financial, if you're an equity analyst, for example, and you're looking at a, um, you know, particular company, you know, how do you, you know, how do you value that? And how do you look at, you know, where those risks lie? And who, you know, is there a common framework for that? So disclosure is a big issue. And same goes for the, the TCFT, because in, in Europe or the US, disclosure is a lot better. For example, in Asia, it's much more difficult. Um, so it's going to be, doubly as hard for um, the TNFD, but <clears throat> I think it's a very really good start.
1: Let's now join um, that topic and talk about bankable nature solutions, which is the area where you are particularly focused today. Can you explain what the space actually involves and also any highlight, any differences between your focus here and the broad topic of biodiversity that you just introduced?
2: Yeah, sure, Suzanne. Um, Bankable Nature Solutions was something that we created about, I would say about three years ago, almost, almost four years ago now. The reason why we came up with this is because we were being asked by the private sector, mainly financial institutions, um, that and they were saying, look, we want to get involved with these type of projects that focus on things like biodiversity and conservation and the environment in general. But there's not enough projects out there that are are large enough and good enough for us to invest in. Um, the, you know, the space is very fragmented. We want to find something. You know, we we need big projects to invest in to get involved. So the real crux or the real Um, point behind the initiative or the the whole program that we're we're running here is that we want to mobilize or catalyze private sector capital to go into conservation. Because we found that if you look at the money that goes into conservation right now, it's clearly not enough. I mean, we're talking about development bank and development agency money. Um, We're talking about um, foundation capital. That is not enough to get even anywhere close, we want to, you know, to where we want to get to, actually accomplishing any of the SDG targets. If you use that as a, as a maybe a way to quantify a measurable quantification, what we need to do is to make conservation profitable or a business proposition. So therefore, that because that investment money is only, or that money is only going to come in for investment. It's not going to come in for donations. So we have to make these projects that we work on. Um, profitable or have some kind of revenue stream that can then pay back investors at a rate that they think is worth their time. So that's where we came out with this. So that's, that's what it really is. And so what we try to do is we want to find projects that have strong environmental impact. Um, and that can be, you know, from anywhere from, you know, climate mitigation and adaptation to, you know, biodiversity, you um, you know, I- improvement in a particular landscape where we're focusing. Um, and then the second thing we want to do is we want to make sure there's a business case and it has, you know, it's basically bankable, hence the word. And then the third point, which is scalability or replicability. though That is absolutely essential to getting the private sector involved because a lot of the projects that have been out there, while they're good in, 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 in their form, they're just not big enough to get the private sector uh, interested
1: no, that's helpful to understand. So I think the first point, though, I want to just clarify is when you're thinking about these projects or, I mean, looking at underwriting them, for you, they need to have a commercial rate of return. Would that be correct?
2: We, well, it depends on who our investors are. So we we will come in and basically, as WWF, I mean, we're not an uh, investment bank. So we will look at them from a standpoint. We basically we're conveners of parties, and we help structure these. Uh, and e- first, evaluate and then structure these projects um, to make sure they're ready for investment. And it depends on who the investors are. But yes, typically our investment our investor uh, base uh, they would they want to have uh, projects that have a commercial rate of return. That's correct.
1: And then, you know, when we often look at nature-based projects, very quickly the discussion or the focus becomes around the carbon sink potential of such investments. Uh, And obviously, therefore, the role they play around climate change, but also because of that carbon absorption capacity, the revenue stream that can be derived obviously, from that, particularly more often from, you know, voluntary carbon credits. Now, when we talk about bankable nature solutions, should we be creating such a tight link with with carbon or, or not?
2: I would say it depends on the projects that we're looking at. So if, it's, if it hits those three categories that I mentioned in and of itself, where you have the, the environmental impact, then you have the bankability in and of itself – The project, and then you have the scalability. Um, I think we don't necessarily. The the carbon element can come in as an as a as an overlay, as an enhancement. Let's say, for example, maybe it is it is a good project, but maybe the rates of return a little bit too low. So, how do we attract investment? Maybe we can add. A carbon uh, offset, a carbon credit element to these projects, so that that that's possible. Or maybe that it's a great project anyway, and we just want to add it on because it 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 makes sense. I mean, we're looking at a project in in India where it's going to be a huge opportunity for carbon uh, offsetting and high quality carbon offsets. So that could be a potential, um, that could be potential right there. But now, where it could be used. When something is not bankable, if we're talking about a pure nature-based solution, um, it could be used in that regard. Where let's say it's something of mangrove restoration. Well, you know mangroves in and of, of, in and of themselves are not really you know bankable. That you can't have a business per se around uh, mangrove restoration, but you can add the carbon offsetting element to that, that will then make investors interested.
1: No, interesting. And I think that like really brings us to the next topic, which is generally when we think about things within the nature space, projects within the nature space, you know, we come time and time again to talking about forestry or plantations, um, sustainable agriculture. Um, But from your experience, really, the space is far broader so, so can you sort of highlight examples of topics to really sort of stimulate people's ideas of just the breadth of the space? And as you yourself highlighted, you know, the scale issue is really important. And so out of the plethora of opportunities that potentially you see, maybe just draw our attention to, um, you know, those spaces that you believe could absorb larger sums of capital.
2: We're looking at one, for example, in like I mentioned earlier in India, um, where it's basically a project that's taking agricultural waste, in this case, rice paddy straw waste, and putting it through a anaerobic digester, and then turning that into energy so that is a that is an example of, of, of what we're you know what we're doing there and that's less so of a forestry project but it is related to agricultural waste other ones that we're working on that are a bankable project that are it's not directly related to um, carbon sinks at all but it's related to climate uh, mitigation and adaptation is one we're looking at in, in Vietnam which is a rice uh, an integrated rice and aquaculture project um, so what we're doing there is we're working on with Uh, local rice farmers in the Mekong uh, Delta to improve their livelihoods uh, by integrating their rice production with sustainable shrimp farming. Um, and the idea behind that is, is that yes, we improve their livelihoods and we get, we get other products, we have sustainable shrimp um, and we can sell that at a higher level, but we also are working to bring in the natural sedimentation process into the Delta because what's happening there. The problem is, is that the Delta is sinking and it's a major problem because you have sea level rise, you have the the, the Delta sinking because of land subsidence and then what we're trying to do through natural irrigation is to bring that back and to help the land slowly build back up. So there's many projects that we can go into or look at. And even here in Hong Kong, um, we're looking at a project that is, is. so what we want to do here, um, and this won't have a carbon element to it, but what we want to do here is we want to, there's, there's a, basically Hong Kong imports almost 90% of its fish and, and they import most of their food, but 90% of its fish comes from uh, overseas and it's flown in with a huge carbon footprint. Um, Amazing. yeah, that's right. And then we found out though, w- or after COVID, how reliant we are on that and how, you know, there was a scare, you know, the shelves were, you know, all the, the, the panic and people buying things and there was a you know, scarcity for food for a while. But then, you know, we started to realize, you know, and I think a lot of countries and in, in, in territories have realized that, you know, we need to have, you know, some self sustainability here, some self, um, you know, food that we grow ourselves. So what we're trying to do here in Hong Kong is actually have our own fish cultivation. We, there is some, but it's very small. So what we want to do is build a best-in-class uh, sustainable aquaculture, which is in the open water. So it's mariculture. Um, and we want to build a pilot and have that set up. And that's been, you know, we got some funding for that. So what we want to do is take the grant capital and then expand into, you know, basically getting investment capital or using a major private sector partner that will work with us on these projects to come and do something like, for example, supply chain financing to get the money from a bank directly to the smallholder fish uh, farmers. And so what we want to do is, is see if that whole thing works and then expand that throughout the greater Bay Area. And then another one that we're looking at that's that's kind of local as well in Hong Kong, but can really scale up around the region for our, for the Asian Australasian flyways is basically looking at how we can work on projects on, on near or close to wetlands. Wetlands are highly important and we need to, that's right. And we need to preserve those. And so, we're looking at ways of how we can preserve wetlands. Now, next to a lot of these wetlands you have, um, there's a lot of aquaculture actually next to wetlands. And so we're looking at ways of how we can um, use different methods to either, well, basically either want to revitalize current uh, aquaculture ponds or fish ponds that are there that have been kind of abandon, or ones that are there, but they're not doing very well in terms of money, in terms of, you know, profitability. And then these farmers want to abandon them. So what will happen is that happens. Then there's a potential for rezoning. There's a potential for losing the wetland. So we want to encourage these farmers to keep operating, um, and not abandon them. So therefore we can then, um, preserve them. So what we're trying to do is how do we add income to their already small or declining margin, uh, Fish business. So, what we want to do is add things like floating solar panels, um, or what we've looked at, what they have in Bangladesh, which is really amazing, is looking at floating agriculture. And so, those are two uh, things that we can add, uh, or two income streams that we can add to uh, a fish. Uh, aquaculture operators' uh, income. So there's many projects that we're looking at, and we have about, you know, I'd say 17 right now in the pipeline um, that we're trying to put through for investment. Um, And a lot of this um, outside of Hong Kong, as long as it's in developing countries, we have a strong uh, backing. We have the the Dutch Fund for Climate and Development that we're using to fund and incubate all these projects, but also invest in these projects.
1: It sounds like a lot of the projects are quite early stage that you're seeing um where where's, if you will, the challenge of funding? Is it at that early stage? is it later on you know and and maybe talk to us some about some innovative sort of approaches that you've seen in terms of addressing um, I- addressing that pipeline, if you will?
2: Suzanne, that is an excellent question. I'm so glad you asked that because to th- that question is the is the I guess you can say the million dollar question because right now what I'm finding, is that the hardest thing to get funding for is the origination and the incubation. So we're working with either internally at WWF with our conservation staff all around the world, or we're working with entrepreneurs that come to us and they um, they have an idea and they say, okay, here's our idea. And then we, you know, some of it, you know, sometimes they come to us, it's pretty good, but we got to fix that and change it. And, you know, with the conservation, with the actual environmental impact, but also the financial impact. Um, you know how it looks financially for an investor, so that's that's what we're doing. But yeah, we're starting at the very early it's really, stage.
1: It's really sort of redefine seed financing, right?
2: <laughs> that's right. That's exactly right. The Dutch Fund for Climate Development is probably the most pioneering initiative in conservation. In the Dutch Fund, you have FMO and Climate Fund Manager, the two senior investment partners in the consortium. So they say, okay, well, how do we get a pipeline of projects? Because that's the biggest part that's missing. You know, people come to us with, with projects, but you know, there's just not enough. We want more. And so they basically said, okay, we're going to use WWF to go find these projects and work with us to pr- build this pipeline of projects.
1: So I know a lot of our listeners will be familiar with SPACs, but now we see the rise of NACs or natural asset companies. And this is pretty leading, leading edge. Um, talk to us about what is a NAC.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think this is interesting. I mean, the, the announcement that I saw that came out about this is, is you know, it's pretty, you know, the, it I guess on paper it looks, it looks really good. You know, I like the way it looks. There's certainly... Um, some I guess you can say f- theoretical merit to this, but you know the, I guess it's a you know you can say it's a bit it's a bit vague uh, in terms of what they've come out with um, you know the I guess the question I would have is you know what's the you know financial incentive um, is there a mechanism that causes the value of these contracts to go up over time um, can they be used as carbon offsets there's a lot of unanswered questions and I think you know' i've, I've seen this and again, I don't want to. I don't want to completely write this off because, f- from big ideas come big impact. These type of contracts, they, they could take off if governments started, you know, taxing carbon emissions, um, net of some kind of offset. Um, and I think the more popular they got, the more uh, incentive uh, there would be to create more of them.
1: Excellent. Look, very much appreciate your your time today. You know, it's really good to have someone who is really dealing with projects on the ground. Our listeners can say, well, they heard it here first, right? In terms of the development of potentially a new asset class or um, sub-asset class out out of real assets. So really appreciate you taking the time today.
2: Thank you, Suzanne, it was a pleasure to be here and I really enjoyed your questions.
0: That does it for this episode of RPM. A very warm thank you to Jean-Marc for being so generous with this time. In the fourth and final episode in our climate change special, Margaret Cullow, Global Finance Practice Leader at WWF International, who will be sharing her expertise on sustainability as they relate to biodiversity. So please stay tuned. If you enjoyed this episode, visit our show page at www.subtunegroup.com. You can also find RPM on Apple Podcasts, Spotify's Stitcher, and other podcast providers.